Welcome to X-Rated Movies. This is a movie podcast by two guys who used to date, and now they don't. I am one of your hosts, Brian Whedon. I'm another one of your hosts, Matthew Fisher. And Matt, we are legitimate now. People are paying to listen to our podcast. This episode is brought to you by Jessica Baxter and... Christy Valenti. And as a thank you, we're officially going to name the $5 tier... After both of you. Yeah. We were thinking that you could help us come up with that name. We were thinking maybe we could name part of it after the Paid and Puke podcast. Jessica, right. give, give, give you a little exposure there. Christy, I don't know if you have a podcast. Or some other thing that you'd like to promote. Yeah. We could call it whatever you want. We could call it the... Uh, uh, Glob-a-dob-log-nog-nog, <laughs> if you the, want. We could call it the Glupenheim. Yeah. But... Yes, the $5 tier is going to be known as the Paid and Puke Valenti TBD, name mm-hmm. TBD, <laughs> tier. Yeah. Uh, as you were the ones who, uh, as Ryan put it earlier, broke the hymen <laughs> on the $5 Patreon yeah. level. Now, that level is going to be named after both of you. Exactly. Uh, moving forward, that is our plan for the next tier. So if you want to break the $10 hymen tier. Right. In $5 increments, if someone wants to, yeah, break that that $10 hymen, it will be named after you or... Whatever you're choosing. Yeah. yeah something of your choosing. So, um, you know, like if, if, say, your name is uh, Eric Blood and you want to break the $10 tier, it would be the Blood tier. Yeah, absolutely. Which has a really nice ring to it. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, he has a band now. Right. I mean, he's had bands before. But, pink Lotion. Uh, it could be the Pink Lotion tier. Yeah. And you know what? These aren't set in stone. If your project, you know, changes or you want to change it, let us know. We'll change those tiers. You get those naming rights for life. Yeah. And for a Donahue more dollars. <laughs> that's a shout out to Jimmy Donahue. Yeah. Good one. Um, You know. That can be the name of your tier. Yeah. I mean, to have an X-rated tier named after you on Patreon. I know. It's it's something I would strive for if I <laughs> if I wasn't on the podcast so already. I would donate, but the money would just be going to Ryan. You're right. And I already plow him with wine and booze as it is. I mean. Although, you do get me a very nice bottle of tequila recently. That's right. And that's not tequila, technically. It is a mezcal. Mm-hmm. Oaxacan mezcal. I went to Mexico, everybody. God, have you been to Mexico lately, Matt? I've never, ever been to Mexico. Ugh. It's pretty nice. I'm going to tell you. Where I was, 70 degrees was like the low. So you mean it's not like Seattle? Uh, yeah. I mean, I knew that you were gone because I took care of your cat. <laughs> Yeah. cat's name is Extreme Danger, ladies and gentlemen. So, like, I hung out at your house a bunch. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. So I got you a bottle of Mezcal. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what? I have never been a big fan of Mezcal, personally. Mm. But now I'm that asshole who has since come back and, like, you know, I didn't appreciate Mezcal <laughs> until I actually went to Oaxaca and uh, oh, tried yeah. a bunch. So that's me now. I love it. Maybe it's because Mezcal's always been like an upper echelon liquor that I, I, I feel like I've always been on that wavelength. I'm like, we don't really drink tequila, but if you have some Mezcal. Mm. I appreciate it so much more now. There's something about drinking a spirit of the land in the land mm. that really like 
works for me. Now I want to go like, I'm going to go to Scotland and drink scotch because like, I don't really like scotch, but hell, I'll try it in Scotland because maybe I'll appreciate it then. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. like, yeah, like it, just something about it really, you feel it. And like the best way to do it, I would, I would get it with a beer. I would get like a shot of like good mezcal with a beer and like you just kind of sip it and then. That sounds good. It's nice. It nice really, hot day, cold beer, shot of mezcal. Yeah, yeah, it really worked. It was, it was good. And, and like when you're down there, something about those flavors just feel right. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I really enjoyed it. So and I, I'm excited. I brought back a couple bottles and uh, I don't want to drink it at all now that I'm back <laughs> here suddenly, but uh, maybe that'll change. I do have to say, so you spent a full week in Mexico. Yeah. You are not one iota darker Thank you. <laughs> I did use a lot of sunscreen because, you know, we're so close to the equator. And ginger. Mm-hmm. I, I, I may not have tanned, but you didn't remark at all on how much I broke out from wearing all the sunscreen. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh. I guess that's just how I feel you always look. Ah! <laughs> I'm kidding. Of course. I can't see anything. Your youthful visage hides any blemishes. <sighs> there. See, now. Now you're talking. I recovered, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Mexico, beautiful, lovely. You know what? I, I did Duolingo before I went down. To you did a lingo? Duolingo, the app to like learn Spanish. Oh, okay. Continue. <laughs> to a couple months, a couple months ahead of time. Like I've been doing it for a while. You know what? Here, here's a tip, Duolingo, if you're listening. Give me some numbers ahead of time. Like mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. can say Juan eats apples, but do I know what 40 is? No. So... It, it would be nice just because, like, there was one day I went to a bakery and I got a bunch of things and it came to, like, 40 pesos. But the lady, the woman, I mean, she was so nice. She said how much it was, and I think it was 40 pesos. I gave her 400 pesos. Oh. That's what I thought she said. And she gave me this look of horror of just, like, <laughs> oh, no. No, no, honey. You're like one of those shitbags who, like, buys a candy bar and pays with a $100 bill. Mm-hmm. My coworker always wants me to go to Puerto Vallarta with him. Because another one of our coworkers has a timeshare there. Oh, yeah. And so he's like, oh, I won't be using it this season. You guys can, like, go and have free reign. And with this specific coworker, I want to go because we have exact opposite taste in men. Mm. And I was like, oh, we could hit up the bars and be, like, excellent wingmen for one another. I heard there's, like, 12 gay bars in Puerto Vallarta now. Yeah. Well, I guess because uh, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton started their affair there. That's what... Night of the Iguana. Uh, yeah, Night of the Iguana. But for whatever reason, like gay culture flocked there. I don't know why gay people go to any place Elizabeth Taylor went. Um, <laughs> I like to think I started that in 1987, which was the first time I went to Puerto Vallarta. You were a very sexually active <laughs> seven-year-old. I remember Juan well. He taught me what gracias really meant. <laughs> you held him in your arms. <laughs> But yeah, no, I've heard from a lot of different people that Puerto Vallarta is very, very gay friendly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's and, go. Yeah. Next rated in Puerto Vallarta next year, this time. Uh, Maybe uh, that's uh, if we get enough on our Patreon. Send us to a, a live taping in Puerto Vallarta. Ooh, we'll do Night of the Iguana in Puerto Vallarta. Ooh, I like it. Done I like and it done. A lot. Done and done. <laughs> Well, 
We've talked a lot about our neighbor to the south, Matt, but maybe it's time to talk about our neighbor to the north. Yeah, that was a good pivot. That was a good pivot. <laughs> good job. What are your feelings on Canada? Uh, I'm pro-Canada. As an adult, I've only been to Vancouver. But it's a lovely city. And oh, honestly, yeah. I think it's the one of the best places to go out to eat that I've ever been to in my life. Victoria. Victoria. Uh, Vancouver. Victoria's a piece of shit. <laughs> Uh, Vancouver's where it's at. Vancouver, we love you. Well, you know, it's funny that we're talking about Canada now. Because yeah, all of a sudden. Today's movie happens to take place in Canada. <laughs> it does happen to take place in Canada. It's a Canadian movie. Like, it's funded by the Canadian Film Board. How about that? Uh, how about that? Well, today's movie, continuing my meta movie season, is Sarah Polly's 2012 documentary, Stories We Tell. So, just to be clear, it's Sarah Polly. Yeah. Like Polly Wanna Cracker. Right. Okay. This is the second Sarah Polly movie mm-hmm. in the lifespan of this podcast. She has three chosen. movies. <laughs> Longtime fans might remember Take This Waltz that Ryan Which and I Matt hated. Ardently disagreed on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, now we're doing this one. Let's get it out of the way. You know, it's. Did you like it? <laughs> I thought it was okay. Okay, okay. It's odd. Like, you know, Sarah Polly, okay, I'm not super keen on her as a director, but I have seen the two movies that we've done on the podcast in theaters. <laughs> At least if I'm looking through a, a film festival catalog, the the plot synopsis is engrossing enough to make me buy a ticket. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So it, she's got that going for her. I mean, three movies, they're all three very radically different movies. So what is the third movie? Uh, away From Her, about old woman with dementia. Okay. Sorry, Julie Christie. And that's a, like a traditional movie. Yeah, right? very yeah. straightforward. I haven't yeah, yeah. seen that one, yeah. It's good too. I okay. mean, Lady makes good movies, I think, personally. I mean, I'll, I'll get this out of the way. I don't love this movie, but I think it's very interesting and I've never seen anything like it. I still think it's like one of a kind. So, all right. Last week I was complaining how about how easy it is to make a documentary meta. Mm-hmm. That like all you really have to do is suddenly turn the documentary about the making of the documentary, which in a documentary is very easy. It does happen a lot. You're and right. then suddenly it's meta. I got really worried watching this one. I was like, oh, fuck. Is that all this is? And it's not. It's not. It's, yeah. it's really not. And... I'd forgotten about a lot of the meta elements in this since seen in theaters, which when I looked at the release date, I was like, oh, it's been a while. Yeah. It was initially released in 2012. Yeah, seven or eight years. So I was like, oh, there's a solid reason why I don't remember some of the subtleties of this movie. Yeah. And so it is more meta than, say, like, uh, what's his name? Nick Bloomfield, who... You know, he's like, oh, I'm going to go down to Florida and interview Eileen Warnes. And then, like, he can't. And suddenly the documentary is about, like, the barriers to him interviewing Eileen Warnes. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is meta because it starts out as a documentary and then becomes, like, a documentary about the documentary. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is not that. And it's very consciously not that. Yeah. I like that about it. And yeah, no, no, no. That's very good. I don't know if you want me to air out my grievances with this movie right away or if we want to get into it later. Well, let's give a little like premise about it first. Sarah Polly had sort of a revelation in her 20s that person she thought was her dad was not a real dad. 
took a, a paternity test, found out it was a different guy. And that guy's kind of famous in Canada. I've never heard of him before, but um, famous film producer. Famous in Canada. I know. What, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> Said no one's autobiography. <laughs> but uh, it was going to be a news story that, oh, Sarah Polly found her new, her real biological father. It's this you know famous film producer. And she's like, I don't want this to be a story until I've like made until every story i tell yeah and so um a couple reporters like sat on the story until she finished this movie which was like five years in the making yeah those canadian paparazzo are real lazy <laughs> or patient or you know they're like oh or, i don't want to passionate don't want to upset you oh yeah <laughs> yeah we'll sit on it it's fine we'll let you get the scoop on this one <laughs> i've got i've got I think the- that's just my fargo accent <laughs> i know We've got this uh, milk bag story we're going to run, so it's fine. Don't worry about it. Sorry about sorry about that. Sorry. <laughs> it, uh, it's either this or the Canadian Olympics, yeah? <laughs> there goes our Canadian listenership. <laughs> Someone was just about to click uh, $25 tier <laughs> on Patreon, and they're like, wait a minute. They're going to name it the Maple Leaf tier. <laughs> Not anymore. But so she made this documentary and mm-hmm. like because uh, she, she wanted to make sure that all parties involved got some sort of like equal weight. Yeah. Um, which is a bramble bush that she's happy to like dig into. Yeah. It sort of seems like she almost enjoys the thorniness of getting multiple perspectives. Yeah. Which honestly... I don't want to jump too far ahead, but someone has a complaint about having the stories being given equal weight. Mm-hmm. And on paper, I agree with him, but and maybe it, it's Sarah's directing, but it didn't really come across as the problems that he felt that it was going to have. Yeah, to me at least, I I, I felt like it was a fairly clear narrative. Like it was distinct in the way that like oh, everyone has a, a viewpoint on the story. But the actual narrative, like, she injected it pretty clear. And I, I didn't feel that, that it got bogged down or was distracting to have there's, there's, the different voices. Yeah, there's details we don't know and can never know. But I think the core story is pretty clear. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it is too. But, I mean... This whole documentary to me is a meditation sort of on the nature of truth and like memory uh, and how a little can... Rashomon, yeah, but like a real life Rashomon, yeah, a little and, bit. And like, um, the meta element to it is that like life is essentially just like a series of stories we tell ourselves, like, several characters in this movie are old and decide to write memoirs and like what is a memoir but like sitting down and telling stories about your life so the meta element comes in where it's like sarah polly is now trying to tell this story and inevitably the pitfalls of that like if you're telling a story you have to be telling it from your standpoint and so there's gonna be biases and issues with that and to me, once it became clear that like she was telling a story, like it, like something like, and the only way I can describe it is like the bottom falls out and everything just becomes like resonant, you know. Mm. Um, like once I kind of realized that some of the f- footage 
that she was showing was faked. Which is super convincing. Yeah, it's whoever they got the actress like looks like Sarah Polly's mom, or could be. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Really good. Yeah, because I remember watching it, and, and it had been so long that I'd kind of forgotten about that aspect of it. I watched this movie just like three or four months ago to make sure it was meta worthy, and like I forgot again watching it today. I was like, oh shit. Well, because she doesn't slap you in the face with it. It's not really till the end till till you see her like kind of looking around the room with the Super 8 camera that you mm-hmm. like. Suddenly it dawns, and you're like, oh, this is fake. This footage is all fabricated. Yeah. It also like speaks to what we expect in a documentary, especially one about families and found footage. It's like, oh, you just assume that they had a Super 8 camera. And I mean, there was a couple times when I was watching, I was like, God, they really like lucked out because someone always had a Super 8 camera right, yeah, around. Me too. There was one part where it was just like the dad and her like building the snowman. And I was like, oh, who's yeah. filming this even? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but I didn't like I go thinking, past that thought. I was thinking of like the mom when she was filming or when she was in the play Toronto in Montreal, which every time they said that, I I got confused a little bit. Right. They lived in Toronto, but she had to travel to Montreal to do the play Toronto. Right. Right. Yeah. And there's like shots of her at the bar. And I'm like, wow, this is really convenient. They got the whole cast of the play in this shot with her arm around Harry. I was like, wow, this is a good job. Whoever did this. Great, Great footage. But I mean, really the bottom line is, you know, spoiler alert, all the footage, the Super 8 footage, or most of it, there's a, I was gonna say, I think I don't a little think bit of, of it, yeah. a little bit at the beginning, I think is real, but most of, of the footage is actually fabricated, but it's done so convincingly yeah. that you don't even question it unless you're really being hypercritical or until we get to the end and we find out that like when they show like them applying like the mustache to the hairy actor and stuff like that yeah but then also like i mean there's moments when um she's talking about like when she first meets harry and like there's she's talking about when they meet in a coffee shop and uh that's filmed on super eight and like she's saying like oh you told me this and it like it's silent film style where it's like she's mouthing the words but like the voiceover is saying the words i mean it's the same thing when she goes to her father yeah and it, to tell him that like yeah it's you're the not same my actual father there. yeah those and those moments it's like you it's already sort of know like, that it's like she's hinting she's yeah, giving you hints that, absolutely. like i've been fabricating a lot of this absolutely and i just i think that's really clever it is really clever like i kind of shat on the movie a little bit last week but i watched it now i'm like no sarah Polly goes that extra step to do something different with a meta documentary. Like the idea that she's fabricated this found footage actually does kind of go a different step. And I, I think a lot of people would complain about it. Like, Oh, this was an actual footage, but you know, Werner Herzog openly talks about how he will rehearse these non actors, like the actual people from, you know, whatever he's trying to document, he, he will rehearse them, do multiple takes, actively try and get strong emotions out of them by by provoking them like because for him he does the picasso thing where it's like art is the lie that makes us realize the truth Mm -hmm. and i feel like sarah paulie's kind of doing the same thing that it's like 
yeah, none of this this Super 8 footage is real, but it's making us understand what was real. Yeah, it, it's painting a picture that we wouldn't be able to paint otherwise. Like, there's all this talk at the beginning of the movie of, like, what Diane is like, what her mom is like. And my impression is she was a fun person at parties, that she was a fun person to have in an audience because she laughed loud. You can't... You can't talk about Diane, I don't think, without talking about her laugh. It infused every situation that she was in. It would be one thing to see people sitting on a couch saying that, but to get like what looks like actual footage of the woman while people are saying it, it like it completes that picture for you. Yeah, because A, the actress looks so much like Sarah Pauly. It's really good. Like when casting. you see her, like, oh well that's clearly her mother you don't even question no it. doubt yeah. that's her mother you don't question it and to just hear you know actual sons and daughters talk about what a, a lively human being she was it perfects the illusion of what sarah's trying to convince yeah when i saw the, the documentary initially i didn't question it and there is a power in that that like i see this woman I hear people talking about how this is the mother that everyone had. And, you know, I'm not fact-checking the do the documentary at yeah. this point. Like, I'm just here for what these people are telling me, and I buy it. Yeah. And it really sells the illusion of what we're seeing. And I think it makes for interest, like, uh, visually interesting filmmaking, too. Like, you know, I, th I think back to... Um, the Thin Blue Line, mm -hmm. the Errol Morris documentary, which is like a similar idea, like because you're like you're trying to get at what is truth kind of thing. That movie is very visually interesting, and it's just a true crime mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. This movie too, or it's like we're just trying to paint a portrait of a family story, which honestly isn't all that interesting. I'm just going to be honest. Well, with okay, you. so like, this is this is where my like grievance with the documentary comes from is like I think that Sarah Pauly did an amazing thing with at least in this day and age a not so interesting story like I know that on paper and like if it were happened to me I would feel like it was really interesting fascinating but I think in a post 23 and me society like I've heard this story a lot at this point like I I was just listening to Katie Kirk's podcast last week where she was interviewing someone who was like, yeah, I was raised in a Jewish household. I was raised to be Jewish. I had blonde hair. You know, I had Holocaust survivors pat me on the head and be like, oh, we could have used you in the camps, Blondie. You could have gotten us bread. And how she felt like such an outsider and that she didn't belong. And then she took a 23andMe test and it was like 2% oh. Ashkenazi Jew. And suddenly she was like, oh, this is why I felt out of place my whole life. Mm -hmm. And then like, she contacted her sister, who also did 23andMe, and was like 99.9% .9 Ashkenazi Jew, and was like, oh, we're not actually sisters. Like, this story of not actually coming from the people who you believe to be your parents, I think in a post-23andMe society isn't as rare. Yeah. Like, if you go to 23andMe, they even have, like, a support section now for, like, what happens if your tests reveal that your parents aren't your parents. Yeah. Like there's a whole, and you, you, you can even fucking go to Reddit and there's like a, a support section where like people talk about like how they found out their family's not their family. I mean, 
yeah, it's not that uncommon anymore. It's it's yeah. not that. And honestly, it's like they make it sound like the plot of this is like crazy twisty. But you know what happened? Her mom went to a different city, fucked a bunch of guys. Probably. I mean, I'm assuming it's a huge orgy. And <laughs> I was she, say, one of them she got her, had sex with like two guys. One of them got her pregnant. And it turned out it was this one dude. And then Which, she I mean, decides, let's be real here. We've all had more than one load. In I us. know, whatever. <laughs> uh, but then she comes back and she almost like this, like kind of like struck me this time where it's like, because at the very beginning, they talk about how like the mom and they make it seem like at the beginning, it's like because she's so old that it's like a late pregnancy. Well, because she's she like, like 42. 42, and she's like, oh, I should probably have an abortion. Diane did arrange to go to the hospital for an abortion. And we were actually on the way down when she changed her mind. She suddenly said, I, I can't go ahead with this. The movie at the beginning makes you think it's because she's old, but then like later you realize it's like, oh, it's because she's scared to bring a child into this family unit mm-hmm. that might belong to somebody that's not the father of this family unit. Right. Like, which understandable like you, oh, you might totally you're like i don't think we can handle that but then she did and then she just sat on that secret yeah which is what i believe gave her cancer <laughs> wow okay i'm gonna posit that yeah because like the father like not the baby daddy but the father michael is his name michael has a really sort of open-minded approach like when diane's like i'm pregnant but you know at at my age it's not healthy to have a baby down syndrome or health situations for me and she said well i I think i should seriously consider having an abortion i said well if that's the way you feel about it uh, that's okay with me it's it's your decision it's your body not mine this was like late 70s so yeah and so I, i part of me was like wow Good for him. Like I, I'm one of those people that thinks that like the man should have 49 percent of the vote in an abortion <laughs> situation. Like they get to say whatever they want. They get to air any thoughts they have, but 51 percent of the decision is left to the lady. Mm-hmm. And that struck me that like that's the approach that he took to it as well. Is like it's your body, it's your decision, whatever you do, I'll support you in it. And I'm like, oh. He even drove her to the clinic. Yeah. And, and then, then when she, she changed her mind And he turned around, too. And he like, turned around. I was like, oh. Kind of a good guy in that way. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, let's be real here. Abortion is never easy for anyone, regardless mm. of the circumstances. I watched Lake of Fire. Yeah, I made you. <laughs> I know, and I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the sort of person that you want driving you to the clinic definitely yeah that yeah. like if you're on your way and you're like nope we're not doing this that they just turn around no questions Say okay but it was also like once it was revealed that he wasn't the the baby daddy he was also kind of like oh i mean that sucks but that's fine it sparked a creativeness in him yeah like, he, he decided like there's a voiceover that's that runs through this whole thing of like there's scenes of him in a recording studio with sarah and uh, she, ever so often she'll be like, Dad, can you just take that line back? But he's reading what he wrote in those like two or three days after finding out yeah. about this situation. And um, it's basically, I think it's like another layer on this whole thing because like it's now him telling this story. So like when we get the, the voiceover narration of Michael, it's his uh, version of these events. Mm-hmm. So it's like 
you're not just getting Sarah's version, which is the movie itself. You're getting her dad's version. Yeah, because like well. Sarah is like the secret star of the documentary. Like everything, like it's about other people, but it's really about her. Yeah, yeah, it is about Diana, but it's really about how Diana had an affair and gave birth to someone that was not the spawn of who who she was married to. Yeah, so it's sort of like. Sarah Polly's not the star of the documentary, but she's like the the gravitational center of the movie. She's the son of it, yeah. Basically. And yeah, but there, there's also the meta element that, uh, which almost seems a little too convenient that Michael and Diana were in a play together, Philomenia, that went on to become the movie Marriage Italian Style, which I've seen uh-huh. with Sofia Loren and uh, Marcello Mastroianni, and Marcello Mastroianni has this long-term relationship with an Italian prostitute who has three sons that she didn't know about, and it turns out one of the sons is actually his, but he can't determine which one is his. It's a a whole Mamma Mia. It's like a reverse Mamma Mia. It's a reverse Mamma Mia. The idea that that actually kind of becomes partially true in their real I'm like, that just seems a little too convenient, but it's also very meta. Yeah, and it's true because there's scenes where it shows that, like, they show close-ups of the like caricatures of them from that performance of the play, and then you see that like caricature hanging in their home later. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm just assuming that that was real and that like that was just hanging in their home. Now I'm like, oh shit, did she just put that there? Maybe she could have. Yeah, she She's really took her her with us. Yeah, she she took her time in how to direct this and how to approach the whole scenario because really. I didn't doubt the found footage except for like once or twice. But even when I did doubt it, I was like, well, you know, it's there. Like I'm watching it. <laughs> the only thing that really kind of took me out of the movie was that Diana. So she had an affair and it was like down to like three people that she had an affair with. And like a full ev- Mamma Mia, uh, if you will, like everyone. I was like, oh, it's this dude, obviously. And like the rest of the family was like, oh, well, Sarah's actual father is this guy. Yeah. Because, like, he's, you know, tall and blondish and pretty good looking. And you're like, yeah, yeah. If I was Could gonna be. Have, if yeah. I was going to have an affair, it'd be with someone like that. <laughs> and then it turns out to be this Gene Shallow looking <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I mean, they don't show what he actually looked like back in the day. But the actor playing him back in the day and what he looks like <laughs> now, we're not really far removed. <laughs> and I was like, Really? <laughs> This is the person that you're going to let, like, plant a seed? She's full of life, Matt. She's, like, fucking anybody. She's well, like... one of my theories as I get older is that, you know, sex isn't just about the physical satisfaction, but it's a, there's an emotional satisfaction, especially Did as you, you get older. Did you just say one of your theories? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and Harry probably satisfied her emotionally because he was not a looker. And she kind of was like she w- had it going on in a traditional sense. Mm-hmm. And Michael's not a looker, you know. In some of the younger one, which granted wasn't actually him, mm-hmm. but some of the younger stuff I was like, oh no, I see it. Well, no, I looked up who that younger actor was because oh. I was like, oh, I'd hit that. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I remember thinking like, oh, Michael, young when he was younger, really had it going on. Yeah, <laughs> but Harry, I feel that if I was Harry and a, a Diana came into my life. I would probably show 
the utmost respect and appreciation for this woman. Mm -hmm. And Diana, the way that they paint her is that she would respond very positively to that sort of attention and affection. And so even though there is an attractiveness disparity, I do think that the emotional satisfaction that she probably would have gotten out of that would have actually you know buoyed it for a little while well and they talk about her um like being attracted to ideas of people more than people themselves because like her her relationship with michael like she was based on his like early well i don't want to say early but he thinks that she fell in love with the character he was playing in a play i think diane fell in love with not with me but with the character i was playing on stage the character is something that is so different from me. It's such an exciting and dominating character. You can't take your eyes off that character. That's absolutely nothing like me at all. But you can see why I would want to play it. So it's understandable that like maybe there was something about Harry that she fell in love with, like an idea of him because he was a producer mm-hmm. at that time. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. So like you, you could like write that story i get that. it's just like I, I can't emphasize enough gene shallot is what he looks like <laughs> with gray hair can, we, can i can i just say that he's a little more melty than gene shallot like like a like a gene shallot that's been in the microwave for like 15 <laughs> seconds just a little melty <laughs> yeah it's just that, like, diana is such like a classic beauty oh yeah she looks great she's beautiful i mean the actress that they got to play Diana as a classic beauty. And like the idea that she's just with some melted Jean Shallots. <laughs> it just it, like the immediate reaction is like that does not compute. Yeah. But, you know, like my theory goes, there's an emotional aspect of sex as well that I'm sure was satisfied. And even when we see Harry in present day, like he's got weird proportions. <laughs> Like, I don't want to knock on Harry because he seems like a nice guy, but it's just like, he's got like Danny DeVito portions a little bit. He also doesn't look like Sarah Polly at all. Not in the slightest. (laughs) Like, they were talking about how like her her father doesn't look like her. Her baby daddy doesn't look like her. I mean, like, I kind of got it with like his his sister. Yeah. Her her sister. uh, Harry's sister. Harry's sister and Sarah's sister. Like, they have that like gummy smile. Right. And like... Those I was kind of seeing it, but with him himself, I was like, "No, what? no, I don't see it at all. Not at all." I mean, whatever. But I'm gonna trust Twenty Three and Me on this one. But uh, well, yeah, they they took a DNA test and it was like ninety nine point nine eight percent sure that Harry was the father. Yeah, and yeah, it's like I don't see it either. <laughs> but w- we don't judge these things based on looks. Science, science. I'll take it. I guess now is a good time to bring this up. Okay. Sarah's gay half-brother. Hit it or quit it. Oh, hit it. <laughs> I know, right? Well, especially, like, granted, they got an actor to play it, but, the, like, the home footage of, like, when I they were a know. teenager, I was like, whew. You're looking for him. I yeah, was. I, oh, yeah. Because by the time they're actually playing that home footage with the siblings, like, we already know he's gay. Like, it takes a minute. Yeah, you, like, he says kinda... something about how he doesn't want to take out the trash. Right. Every time I have to take out the garbage, it's just like... Oh my God, it it just makes you realize you're just marking time. And it's just one of those things that um, 
In fact, I make my boyfriend take the garbage out now. Oh. <laughs> and I mean, up until that point, like you're kind of hoping anyway. You're like, yeah. Well, it's like of the siblings, he's the best looking. Oh, he's really cute. And then, like, yeah, you find out that, and then, like, they show the home footage, and it's like, he's just that scrawny, like... Whoever they got to play him in the, like, staged home footage looks kind of like him. They did great casting on those. He's twink-thin, but sort of, like, traditional masculine as well, and that's a winning combo in my book. Like, he just... Like, he just had that chiseled jawline and no hint of muscle mass and a stupid haircut. And ugh, I'm just getting all hot and bothered yeah. thinking about it. Johnny Polly. Oh, probably was a Polly. Johnny Polly. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but even now, like, which he's got to be, he had to have been in his, like, deep 40s. Well, yeah, he's older than Sarah. Yeah. And she's my age. So, yeah, he was probably eight, nine years older than her. Yeah. Because she was the last... Right, and she's... and it sounded like it was by a good amount that she was the last born. Right, because because they thought they were done with children. Right, but it also says that like when she was like eleven or twelve, all the other kids had moved out of the house, and she was the last one there. Oh, that's true. And yeah. so it was just her and her father for like six or seven years, yeah, or something. Because like that's that. when um, the mom died. Was when she was 11. right. So it was like the mother died, all the kids had moved out, and it was just Sarah and her father. Mm-hmm by themselves and like how close they got and they actually like buddied around quite well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I, the impression that I got is that all the other siblings were like six to seven years older than her. Cause yeah, if she was like 11 or 12 and you know, she was the only kid left in the house. That would mean that all the other kids were 18, 19, something like Sounds that. Sounds about right. Yeah. And uh, the gay one was from a previous marriage. So it was like, right. He's like second. He, he, I think of he was those... the oldest. Oh, I thought he was uh, the second born. Was he? Was the daughter older? He I was the oldest like the, son. He was the oldest son, but I felt like he was the second oldest. But okay. I don't know. I'm just, maybe I'm basing that on nothing. Yeah. But, but um, uh, no, even now, I was like, hit it. Yeah, he's hot. I know. He's such a cutie. And he's got, he's got this a fun, sassy attitude. Yeah, he does. Like, he just seems kind of like that casual, fun sort of sensibility. I like when he turned it, he was like... Uh, what would you say this documentary is really about? Um... Am I breaking the fourth wall here? <laughs> Turn the camera around. <laughs> um, and she starts explaining it, and then like while he's, while she's explaining, he's like, it's also is this a good angle for me? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> telling, <laughs> telling people what? Asshole. <laughs> it's cute. He's he's a lot of fun. Yeah. He gets no. a lot of screen time too. Yeah. While like some of the other siblings don't, and it's like, oh, I get why. He's oh yeah, because he's the, he's the most camera ready. Yeah, he's good movie. <laughs> What else do I want to talk about with this movie? Um, I guess, like, my, my main thing with this that I like is I I like a meta movie that makes me think about what life is. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is another good example of this. Like, one of my big takeaways from uh, studying that in college was that, like, death is just an exit. Like, when somebody dies in your life, they're just not there anymore. Sure. And so it's the same thing with like a character on a stage. When they die, they're just not on stage anymore. Mm-hmm. And this movie makes me really think about how life is really a story. It's all about how you present things. Like the movie starts with that Margaret Atwood quote about how like... When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion a dark, roaring 
a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or, or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. I mean, I think about this a lot in general, just like how my life is a book, basically. And uh, the way that I, you know, think about you or think about uh, like my partner or think about like some shitty uh, customer at the bar are all like characters in my book. Mm -hmm. And the way that I'm painting them is how I feel like it's all coming from my perspective. And then you have your own story, like the way you feel about me and the way you feel about um, you know, your job and like this podcast, whatever. It's all a matter of perspective. Mm-hmm. And like this documentary really makes me examine that and think about what that means. So I like that about it. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, the documentary is a lot more meta than I remembered it being. And part of it is everyone is self-consciously like at the very beginning of the documentary, like you hear her saying I'm gonna ask you now to tell the whole story as though I don't know the story from the very beginning to the very end all these people that you're seeing you know are telling a story and the movie is called stories we tell right and then like we yeah we have the the quote from Margaret Atwood at the beginning about what a story like the you know story's not a story until it ends and we're telling it again mm-hmm. and so like we're already dealing with a lot of meta elements there and then we get that the idea that what we're seeing isn't real but it just a, a fabrication of what we think is real but it plays in so seamlessly to the the uh uh narration that we're building in our head that largely we don't even question it like it's that seamless yeah it's not until that it's pointed out that it's fake that suddenly like our mind is blown a little bit like there it is a more meta than i was dismissing it as being last week it's sophisticated too like it's just it really is like you, you were talking about how you don't think that there's anything like this and i'm sure that like if i drilled down i could find something that was similar to this but i don't know if i'd be able to find anything that was exactly like this yeah it feels unique and it feels it feels uniquely canadian like i'm getting i was getting some um guy madden vibes a little bit with the super eight footage where it's like Uh, yeah uh, okay it's like you know it's like she's taking a style and sort of pastiching is the only word I can think of. No, that's a good word. Into into it. No, that's yeah, that's solid. And um because we've all seen documentaries that utilize home footage. Right. And the idea that she was able to fabricate the home footage feel so organically that we as the audience don't even question it. Like yeah. that that's a solid pastiche. Yeah. I mean, also, like, I think of, like, my Winnipeg is another, like, example of, like, a certain melancholy remembrance of one's youth. I don't feel like American films capture that sense of wistfulness that Canadian films do looking, like, looking back. 
I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm really thinking of just those two, of these two films, like My Winnipeg and uh, Stories We Tell. Okay. Like, it really embraces the melancholy aspects of it. Like, I wish I had done this movie in the fall. The first time I saw this movie was in the summertime, which, guess what? Horrible time to watch this movie. It does not fit at all with that period of time. But, like, it, it just feels like such a fall movie. Like, it seems like something you'd watch in October when you're just sort of, like being introspective and can sort of like get into that mindset of like looking back, you know, Mm -hmm. and I don't know. It has like, it has a real feel to it in that way. Okay. That I, that I like as well. This movie made me cry. I should mention that. Really? Yeah. What part? The part when, um, they're just sort of all remembering the mom. She's like, when on mom, when the day that mom died, you went, we, each of us went in and talked to her. And she's like, What did you say to her? What? With that time that we each had alone with her, what did you say to her? I don't know. Probably that I missed her, that I would miss her, that I loved her, and that would never forget her. That's about all. My mom passed away recently, like seven or eight months ago, and that just kind of hit me a little bit, I guess. So it's weird to think, because now, like, you know, because my mom's gone, like, all we have are the stories we tell about her. Like, that was that was something that we would do when she passed, was like, everyone was, like, starting to just tell stories that they remembered about oh, her. Oh, sure, 100%. So, like, and which just adds another layer to the title of this, which is, like, this is, you know, ostensibly a movie about someone who's dead. What do you do when someone dies? You tell stories about them. And um, everybody has their perspective on that. So it just kind of resonated with me a little yeah, bit. Yeah, did you agree with Harry? So what do you think of the concept of me making this documentary where we're sort of giving equal weight to everyone's version of the story? I don't like it. I, 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 I think that takes us into... Uh, into very wooly, like you can't ever touch bottom with anything then. I don't think so. I don't think that that's what she's trying to do. Like, I think what he was looking for was from a producer's eye of like, we need to tell a story that people will recognize. And I think what she was trying to do was tell a story that is truthful which is different because in his eyes, it's like, if you tell a story that people will recognize, it will get to truth. It will like, if, cause if it's eternal enough, it'll be truthful. But for her, it was like, I just want to try and be as honest and open as possible. And we'll get to truth that way. Like she was, she's just trying to find it a different way. Yeah. See, I, the way I felt was like, he was looking at it from the point of view of like a a playwright. Well, first of all, there are the parties to an incident, those who are there and who are directly affected by it. Then there is a circle around that of people who are affected tangentially because of their relationship to the principal parties. And then there's another concentric circle further out there, which basically has heard or been told by one of the principal players about it. And all of these may have 
different narratives, and these narratives are shaped in part by their relationship to the person who told it to them and by the events. On paper, I, I kind of agree with him. And if I were to like make a narrative movie, I think that he would be right. But because of the exact nature of the documentary that Sarah was making, I was like, I feel like he's wrong. Like, I feel like you can have a documentary with all these different people telling their side of the story and chiming in. And because how a documentary can have these different points of view, cut in something that is quote unquote truth, which is really like the super eight footage. Like we will all land at the same conclusion. Mm -hmm. Like the movie isn't, an open-ended like the documentary is not an open-ended thing it's not like what do you think really happened it's like we all kind of know what really happened you know <laughs> i would love it if... anyway it's up for you to decide yeah, i mean it's it's not one of those that, no, that, yeah. that's open-ended yeah 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 and it really seemed like what harry was worried about was that it would seem open-ended and it's not like mm -hmm. she directed it towards like Mm, we know the, the we know you points. fucked a married woman. <laughs> yeah, we we is know that what he was worried about. We, we know we know you dropped it in someone who was taken. Like, <laughs> and also Diana, like no judgment here. Like you get it where you can get it. Oh, like, I mean, it's a huge slut. We love her. We love her. <laughs> huge slut. Woman after our own hearts. Yeah, she's great. But I mean, and yeah, and then like next, I mean, the next scene is like after that is like her dad. Not her biological dad, but her dad, dad, Michael. It's, saying, it's, it's her father. Like, yeah. Harry is the baby daddy. Yeah. Michael's the father. Yeah. But it's him pointing out that, like, you making this documentary is you making a story. You realize when you finished all this, you got about six hours of stuff, and you'll decide what you want out of it. It'll be exactly like the story. Each one of us will pick out. If any one of us were trying to edit it and decide what we wanted to keep, it would be the same farcical kind of theatrical exercise that we're all involved in. Like, you just have to accept the fact that she's making a, a tale. And uh, that's what we're getting fed. Like, mm -hmm. even if she's giving equal weight, it doesn't matter. She has ultimate editing. And it's like me in this podcast. Like, it doesn't matter if you make great points. I can take them out yeah. if I want. So. And you do. I know there's lots of intelligent things that you've said that I was like, oh, that's you too make smart. You look like a fool. I do my best. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. Like, I like a lot about this movie. I, I wouldn't say it's like a great movie, but like every time I watch it, I'm impressed. Yeah. Like watching it this time, I was like, oh, Sarah Pauly really directs the hell out of this. Like with the Super 8 footage and all the input from all the family members and things like that. I'm like, this This was a talented, well-crafted documentary. My only real problem was with it is that I don't find the central story to be really compelling at all. And this just might be because of a post-DNA test. Like, we can now spit in the tube and mail it off. You did it yourself. You're all temperate fjords and, and whatnot. So the there's the, like two percent Sardinia in there. <laughs> so it, there is just part of me just kind of feels like the the idea that like 
oh, the person who raised you isn't actually your biological father that is a little underwhelmed by that story. I'm like, at this point, we've heard this story a lot. And, like, you're delivering it in a very unique, colorful way. But at the heart of it, because I'm also one of those people that's like, it doesn't matter who your birth father is. Like, what matters is who raised you. Sure. Like, that, like not that, that, that knowing who, who your blood relatives are isn't important or that that shouldn't be a part of your journey. But there's a scene in the movie where there's a concern like, oh, you're not, you're not my blood, your biological father. What does this change? Like, oh, well, it changes nothing. I'm like, yeah, that's right. It changes nothing because, you know, blood is not thicker than water really like they lived together like alone in the house you know the mother had died the other children had moved out and it was those two alone in that house for six seven years like that's bigger to me than just being the sperm donor yeah and the dad even says it was some of the happiest years of his life oh yeah exactly so like nothing's gonna change that yeah so to me it's like being a parent is about being there Sure. Like, not about the DNA. Yeah. That's another story we tell, Matt. <laughs> I say this is not a father. fun to think about a well-made meta documentary mm-hmm. but alas it's all, all, all things must pass yeah because now we have to probably talk about another soul crusher what's next autumn sonata i i don't know i can't wait to see what you've got coming up well we're getting a little reprise next week because uh i'm having a guest on what i wasn't consulted about this (laughs) and i'm having the guest choose the movie he hasn't chose the movie yet but our guest is a mr Corey brewer oh who has gained some fame in the area because he's watched every single movie in scarecrow's giallo section whoa which is like 102 giallo movies which is oof. that sounds like a lot of that sounds uh, like a lot Lord knows I couldn't do it, but he did it, so that must mean that he likes those movies, and uh, he's going to pick one for us to do next week. And uh, We haven't done a ton of that. Of You, st- you, you pronounced it this time Giallo. I thought it was Giallo. The Suspense is Killing Us boys uh, have an episode called uh, Giallo Shots. Oh. So I'm, I'm just kind of going with that one. Okay, okay, okay. But okay. nonetheless, I will ask Corey next week. The great. the correct pronunciation of it. Great, 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 great. Um, yeah, I think the only movie that we've done that fits into that genre is uh, Stage Fright Aquarius. Oh, yeah, okay, okay, okay. Um, other than that, I, I don't think we've done much in the genre. However, Alex Trebek, uh, genre. 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 I don't know if he's going to pick a classic or a deep cut or some sort of hidden gem, but... Uh, <laughs> Secrets. We'll find out. Yeah. Uh, whatever it is, I hope you pick something with a real Baroque arty title. Mm, 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 mm. The, uh... The, the shattered crystals of my belabored murder tears. The wispy train man's pocket glove, uh, whisper trail. The rainbowed reflection 
of the bloody leather glove. <laughs> My knife's glinting edge over a boiling pot of uh, children's tears. The hacksaw's screech of my bone-splitting torture. (laughs) Any of those sound great (laughs) to me. I can't wait to watch any of them. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think it'll be fun. I think it'll be fun. Well, in the meantime, I think we should plug our junk and get the fuck out of here. Go to our Patreon. <gasps> Join Jessica Baxter and Christy Valenti in giving us money. And and break through a barrier. Get to a, a new $5 increment and have the tier named after you. Oh, imagine, can you imagine having a tier named after you? How many tiers do you have named after you currently, Matt? I have no tiers named after me currently. I know, yeah. I'll have to donate 10 bucks just to get a tier named after me on this lousy <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Don't forget, we're on social medias. We have a Twitter handle, which is at Movies, And we haven't been plugging this, but also an Instagram with the same name. Yeah, it's just me posting pictures of whatever shitty movie I'm about to watch. <laughs> but it's fun. Everyone just follow us on there, too. Maybe I'll get in on the game. Maybe I'll start posting shit. I watch shitty movies. Yeah, you do. I've watched a lot of shitty You're movies. You're not watching shitty Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor movies, though. No, I'm, sh- I'm Where watching... Elizabeth Taylor has no lines, but is painted in silver. No, I'm watching shitty movies about Christmas time. Hey, don't bite the hand that feeds here. Should I bleep that out? Tier 12, the $120 <laughs> tier is the tier. <laughs> That's what it's I It's where you can afford your own every time weekend. I watch one of his movies. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what, where were we? Oh! Hey, email. We have electronic mail. It's x.rated.movies at gmail.com. And we have a Facebook where we have the most followers out of anything. Rated X movies. And that seems like everything. Our Patreon, by the way, is patreon.com slash xratedmovies. And uh, we would love for you to give us coins so that we can continue this wonderful project. So until next week, unnamed Giallo Thriller number one. With Corey J. Brewer. Oh, you got Beetlejuice socks on today. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) 